0: Well, friends, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read briefly from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. You can find that, again, by just flipping to the center of your Bible, to the book of Psalms, and then turn a few pages to the right. And you'll find shortly after Psalms, Proverbs, and shortly after Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. The majority of the chapter Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and this will provide us a little bit of context before we go over to our sermon passage which is in Acts chapter 18. So before we go over to Acts 18 let's look briefly at Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verses 1 through 12. Here now the word of the Lord. Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look The tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of the oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore, I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yes, better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor this also is vanity in grasping after the wind. And the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Then I returned and saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone, without companion. He has neither son nor brother. And yet there is no end to all his labors nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to lift him up. Again, If two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Amen. Solomon, in his wisdom, looks at life under the sun, and he sees oppression That is, the relationship between two humans in which one presses down on the other. In which one uses authority and power to hurt and harm the other. Then in verse 4, he looks again at life under the sun. And he sees a relationship in which two humans are in envy of one another and trying to keep up with the Joneses. And then he looks again. And he sees under the sun in verse 7 and 8, one who has no human relationship, one who is alone and has no one for whom to work and no one for whom to be cared for or to care. And in all of these situations, Solomon sees again and again the foolishness of the sinful human heart. To be in a relationship with someone else, simply to use that person is a vanity, Indeed, to embrace our fellow humans without friendship, according to verses 1 and 3, is worse than never having existed at all. Oppression and injustice is such an evil in the world that Solomon says it would be better to have never been born than to be entirely friendless. He says, secondly, that it is A vanity, a grasping after wind an endless pursuit to always have more than our neighbor. To be given over to the intoxication with things and wanting more and more. He says, thirdly, there is such loneliness, helplessness, hopelessness to wander in this world as a lone ranger, as an independent person, an island unto ourselves. Solomon concludes in verses 9 through 12. No, it is better to have friendship. It is better to live in relationships where we help each other when we stumble, where we keep each other warm, where we resist our enemies and our foes who seek to overpower us, in which our bonds together keep us strong. This is the spirit of Psalm 133 applied to our work and to our lives together. There is such good in our fellowship. That's why we've missed it so fiercely this last year. Because there is such good in our friendship and in our companionship. With this in mind, turn over to Acts chapter 18. I'm going to read this morning from Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. This is this the final section of this chapter, it is also the final section of Paul's second missionary journey. In fact, it's intriguing to note here that Luke will very briefly summarize the end of Paul's second missionary journey here, and he will very rapidly launch him onto his third missionary journey. The transition is actually very small, unlike the previous journey's, And instead, he chooses to focus his time and his words on somebody who's not Paul, but a Paulus there in Ephesus. So let's look together. Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28. Here again, the word of the Lord. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed to Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had cut his hair off at Centuria, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must, by all means, keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will again return to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Amen and amen. Recently, I was on my way up to Medford, and I was going up Prospect Street out of Inman Square and I went up over the train tracks and there at the top of the bridge over the tracks, I could look down and see Union Square. And guess what I saw? All the cars backed up the hill in front of me and all the cars backed up around Washington Street and all the cars backed, in bo- backed up on both directions in Somerville Ave. Because there in the center of Union Square as there has been every time I've traveled through Union Square in the last three and a half years, construction. There were the workers, there were the trucks, there were the cones. And as I applied the brakes, both to the car and to my heart, settling into that sanctifying sense of patience that is required in traveling through Union Square, I soon found that our car was still rolling smoothly along, and the cars in front of me were still rolling smoothly along, and, and that patience-inducing halt never came. So that at last I arrived at the intersection between Somerville and Washington there in Union Square, and, and I could see the source of my joy and gratitude. There was a traffic cop. Standing in the middle of the intersection, right at the edge of the construction, in the bright neon yellow jacket, head a-bobbin, hands a-wavin. And by the power and skill and wisdom of this traffic cop, all of the traffic could keep moving. Though there were many of us trying to get through there, though much of the intersection was not available due to construction, yet through the skill and power and wisdom of the traffic cop, the cars kept moving there's a lesson in this for us friends that we who are tempted to look from lord's day to lord's day at our lives and see all the sources of frustration and of fear in our lives and to say this is going to be sanctifying this is going to be patience inducing This is going to hurt. This is going to be hard. We must, with the eyes of faith, see in the middle of our mess the Holy Spirit, who is sovereignly waving his hand this way and that way, who is sovereignly moving our lives and the people around us to the end for which Christ intends them. My friends, we must learn to confess with the ancient creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. This is good news for us this morning. Those of us who feel our feet have been on the brake for far too long, those of us who feel the jam and the press of life and are much frustrated by our seemingly useless powerlessness, we can look with hope and encouragement this morning at this text and learn from the Word of God that the Spirit of Christ does the work. This is good news for us. Jesus' Spirit does the work. So my friends, let us use our gifts for one another. Let us care for one another, serve one another in faithfulness and faith knowing that the Spirit of Christ does the work. Let's look at this for a little bit. Let's take a few minutes here to walk through our text. Notice here, first of all, that the Spirit gives to the church four things in particular in our text. The first is presented to us in verses 18 and 19. Paul has been in Corinth for a year and a half. According to the first part of verse 18... It appears that he remains a little bit longer. And somewhere beyond the year and a half mark, I'm not sure when, he takes leave of the brethren, he crosses the port, and goes to Centuria, the city on the other side of the bay. There he gets a haircut and boards a ship. He departs from Centuria, arriving in Ephesus in verse 19. He drops off Priscilla and Aquila, somewhere in Ephesus, goes up to the synagogue, reasons with the Jews a little bit, they say, This is interesting. Why don't you stay and teach us more? And Paul says, No, no, no got to run. Sorry. Nice seeing you. Luke, in a very unusual way, is racing Paul through both Centuria and Ephesus. And this is striking. Paul is not the main figure in this place. Indeed, the only thing in the scriptures that Paul does in Centuria is get a haircut. Something to do with a vow that we don't even know anything about. I don't know if this was a a vow associated with his time in Corinth, which had come to an end. I don't know if this was a vow in preparation for his time in Jerusalem that he was about to take up. I'm not sure what the vow is, but I just know he got a haircut in Centuria. This is notable. Because according to Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Centuria becomes a church. But Paul is not given credit for the church planting. According to Romans chapter 16, verse 1, Phoebe is a deacon in the church at Centuria. But she was not discipled by Paul. You see, my friends, it is the Holy Spirit who does the work. Not the superheroes. Not the great apostles. It is the Holy Spirit who is capable and indeed sufficient to raise up nameless, unrecorded Christians to be the church planters in Centuria, to be the disciples of deacons like Phoebe. In like manner, we see over in Ephesus that Paul is content to drop off Priscilla and Aquila, to go over to the synagogue and to gather a couple of Jews together and to say, guess what? You're a church plant. Go listen to Priscilla and Aquila and see ya. He is content to move along to go on with his journey, and to leave the work in Ephesus with this small beginning. He promises to return to them in time, God willing. But he knows the power of the Holy Spirit to work in a couple like Priscilla and Aquila. And my friends, we too would benefit well from such faith. To look around and to see that the Spirit of Christ is the one who does the work. He is the one who is able to build this church and to build his kingdom. I know it is easy. It is so easy to look at our marriages and to say, I got the wrong one. It is easy to look at our children and to say, this isn't turning out the way I wanted it to. To look at our parents and to say... I wish I had a better start. Is it not easy to look at one another in our congregation and to say, who here could possibly be a deacon? Who here could possibly be an elder? Is it not easy to look in the mirror and to say, it isn't me, whoever it is. And yet, Luke would have us believe in the Spirit of God. That it is the Holy Spirit who has given us these people. Who have put these friends in our lives. Who have put these people in our homes. Because He knows best. Because He does the work and is powerful and mighty to save and to sanctify. We must believe that it is the Spirit of Christ who does the work. And so the people He has given to us are the people He intends for us to see, to use, to love. But even as Paul realizes that it is the Spirit of Christ that makes people sufficient for their office, it is the Spirit of Christ that makes people equipped, empowered, inspired for their office, he realizes it is the Spirit who gives the proper time and place for that office. You see, while he's in Ephesus and they're begging him to stay longer, he does not consent. If you're looking at the New King James with me, you see there a rationale, a reason. He says that he wants to be in Jerusalem for the coming feast. Now, it's likely that he's actually using the feast as like a time marker, as a calendar thing. He's actually probably more concerned about the fact that he can't sail on the Mediterranean Sea after the feast. So it's more of a concern of the weather. I have to beat the winter weather in order to get a boat ride back to Jerusalem. The reason I think this is because as you see very tightly and tersely in the ESV, if that's what's in front of you, Paul is actually not all that eager to get to Jerusalem. In fact, he arrives in Caesarea, goes up to the church that is in Jerusalem, makes a quick report and goes down to Antioch. Paul is eager to get to Antioch, far more than he is to get to Jerusalem. He's on a strict timeline. He's in a hurry, and he doesn't have much time. So what does he do with the limited time that he has available in Ephesus? He sets up Priscilla and Aquila, and he goes to the synagogue and reasons with the Jews. Isn't it remarkable that a man so busy with such a strict timeline should actually take the time to share the gospel with others and to seek to establish a church in Ephesus. This man is so dedicated to his church planting mission that even though he has but a week or a few weeks in Ephesus, what's he going to do with the time? He's going to plant a church. If he has a year and a half, he'll plant a church over a year and a half. If he has a week and a half, he'll plant a church over a week and a half. The time that he has available is simply the time that he gives to the work of the church. I know that this one comes a little close to home for we who live in Boston. How much time do you have? It is something we fear dreadfully, isn't it? As we talk to one another about the prospect of becoming a deacon, of becoming an elder, as we talk to one another about the prospect of participating in a midweek group or a prayer partnership looming in our minds and overshadowing our hearts is ever the clock and calendar. I just don't have time. My friends... The Spirit of Christ has given you all the time he's going to give you. He's not going to give you more than 24 hours in a day. He's not going to give you more than seven days in a week. The issue isn't more or less time. The issue is what do we do with the time that we have. To quote Gandalf. My friends, the Spirit of Christ has given us the people that belongs in our family. The Spirit of Christ has given us the people that belong in our congregation. And the Spirit of Christ has given us all the time that we need to cultivate healthy marriages, lovely families of family worship, friendship with our neighbors. The question is, what are we going to not do to do those things? My friends, what are we going to give up to be less busy? And to be more in tune with the work of the Spirit. To be more in tune with the movement of the Spirit. And to believe that if I have but a few moments, if I have but a few hours. It is all the time the Spirit has given me for the work that He has called me to. The story was told by Jack Miller of how he boarded a train in Philadelphia. This is Some 30, 40 years ago, he was meeting a friend. And as he walked through the cars looking for his friend, he noticed that everyone on the entire train, car after car, seat after seat, was reading the same gospel tract. And when he found his friend, he said, what is going on here? And he's like, well, I figured I had two or three minutes before you got on, so I just pass out tracts. This was a man who knew how to redeem the time who knew how to invest those precious seconds and minutes of the world into the work of the kingdom and into the work of the Spirit? Do we believe that the Spirit of God needs six-hour windows to work? Do we believe that the Spirit of God only works when there's decades of slow movement? Do we believe that the Spirit of God has raised up the people that we need and given us the time that we need in order to care for one another and to meet one another's needs. But the Spirit gives us a third thing, my friends. We see this in Paul's pursuit of Antioch. Notice in verse 22, he landed at Caesarea, he goes up and he greets the church in Jerusalem, and he goes down to Antioch. Paul is in some haste because he wants to get home. Remember, Antioch is his home base. And that's where he departs from when he goes on his missionary journeys. That's where he goes back when he has returned from his missionary journeys. Verse 23, after he spent some time there. Why is Paul in a rush to get through Centuria, to get through Ephesus, to get through Caesarea, to get through Jerusalem, and to get back to Antioch? Because the man wants a nap. Because he's tired. He's been all over Turkey, Asia Minor. He's been all over northern Greece and down into southern Greece. He's been on his feet for weeks and months on end. He's been preaching the gospel in city after city. He's been yearning for a break. You remember when he went into Corinth, he said that he went in with fear and weakness and trembling. This is a man who needs rest. And so he is racing for Antioch. Where he can spend some time there. Where he can rest. My friends, the Holy Spirit gives us rest. I was on the sidewalk out here this last week with a friend. We were walking along and we were talking about the joy of the Sabbath day. And the incredible blessing it is to have one day in seven where we don't work and we don't worry and we just bathe our souls in the love of God in Christ. And we made that observation from Psalm 23. It is so hard for us to rest that the psalmist actually says, the good shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures. Because we're the stubborn sheep that won't lie down. And so he has to make us. He comes along and he touches our bodies. And he touches our hearts and he touches our minds. And we're sick. And we're frustrated. And we're fearful. And all of a sudden we feel the, the, the limits. And we look and we chafe and we say, I can't work as hard and as fast as I used to. And Jesus said, I know. That's because you won't lay down willingly. So I'm making you lay down because he loves us and he wants us to rest. This is one of the great secrets I have learned in becoming a cyclist. They say it time and time again. The great cyclists who win the race are not the strongest riders or the fastest riders. No, the ones who win the race are the best recoverers. The ones who rest the best win the race. My friends, there is wisdom in this for us. Who are so absorbed with busyness. To always have something on the calendar. To always be going here, there, and everywhere. To never have a moment to think about the word of God. To never have a moment to speak to our Father in heaven in prayer. As we race from work to work to work, we find ourselves burned up, exhausted. And the Spirit of God says, no, I've come to give you rest. I will make you work from rest to come and to have peace. And notice in verse 23, the great success that comes from a well-rested apostle. He departs and goes over into the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Where does that power come from to go about all of Asia Minor strengthening the disciples? It does not come from a burned-out, exhausted man who has put himself to the very edge of his limit. It comes from a man who has known rest, who has gone back to Antioch, who has surrounded himself with friends and with good company, and who has drunk deep of their love And their peace. How many of you have read Herman Melville's Moby Dick? That was put on my to read list before I came to New England. I then found out that the man who made my list hadn't read it either. (laughs) Having actually read Moby Dick, there is this stunning realization in which Herman Melville says that the harpoonist who is best at his job is not busy with the sails or the tackle or the anchor of the ship. He is sitting still and quiet in the prow of the ship, studying the waves, soaking in the sun, resting, resting, resting. And when the whale arises all at once, out of his rest, out of his repose, he springs with haste and with power, and he can strike with strength. Paul is able to engage in this third missionary journey because he launches himself from a position of rest because he has willingly embraced the need for eight hours a night. Do you know what I hate about those like health apps that track how much you sleep? They don't track how much you sleep. They track how little you sleep. My friends... The Spirit of God makes us productive by making us lie down at night. The Spirit of God does the work and if we believe in His power, then we will believe that these people around us are the right people. If we believe in His wisdom and His sovereignty, then we will believe that our calendars are to be crafted by His wisdom. And that the time he has given us is indeed sufficient for the job. If we believe in the power of the Spirit, then we, in like manner, will go to bed at night and wake up refreshed in the morning. Because the Spirit does the work, I don't need to burn myself out all day long. In like manner, we can take a Sabbath day. And we can keep off the work and the world and the worry for 24 hours and say, this one's about Jesus. I'm just going to enjoy Jesus for a whole day. Because the Holy Spirit does the work. I can trust Him. Now the fourth thing that He will give us in order to do the work of the church is He will give us gifts. This is indeed what the Holy Spirit's work in the church is best known for among us. There in verse 24, we are introduced in Paul's absence to a Jew named Apollos. He was born in Alexandria. He is eloquent in speech, he is mighty in the scriptures. This is a well qualified man. Now, allow me to illustrate. He comes from Alexandria. Now, if you know anything about Alexandria, you know that it was named for Alexander. If you know anything else about Alexandria, you know that there was a library there. And what happens to little children who grow up in cities with awesome libraries? They become eloquent in speech and mighty in the scriptures. Well, kind of. They become good with words. They become careful with thought. And Apollos is such a man. This word for eloquent is the idea of well-educated. He knows his rhetoric. He knows his logic. He knows how to orate. He is skillful in his handling of the scriptures. He knows how to bring out the treasures of Christ from the Old Testament. Remember the word scriptures here means Old Testament. The New Testament's being written. So he is skillful in showing Christ in Genesis, Christ in Leviticus, Christ in Esther. He is competent. It says in verse 25 that he is instructed in the way of the Lord. This word is the idea of formal training. He had someone in Alexandria who was careful with the word of God and took Apollos under his wing and trained him to know the word of God and to open its truth with power and wisdom. And this knowledge, it was not dead academics. This man, his head so full of wisdom, so full of truth, his mouth so full of beautiful words... So full of eloquence. He also had a heart. A heart fervent in spirit. Indeed, he is said to preach boldly in the synagogue in verse 26. This guy is the full package. He's what you're looking for when you're looking for a pastor. He is full of passion when he preaches. He's full of big, beautiful words when he preaches. He's full of the truth. Of the scriptures when he preaches. It says in verse 25. He taught accurately the way of Jesus. He knows the gospel. And he's on fire for the gospel. This is the real deal. This is a man born of the Holy Spirit. Filled with the power and the urgency of the Holy Spirit. This is the man you want in your pulpit. And here he comes to Ephesus. You see, my friends, Jesus has a spirit. And he, that spirit, he comes and gifts his church. According to Romans chapter 12, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll give you an easy hint. If you're looking for spiritual gifts, they're both in chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. There you find these lists, and, and the Spirit has given to us as a congregation these gifts. People who are on fire for the gospel. People who are competent with the Word of God. People who have good speech and wisdom, able to instruct and to counsel and to encourage and to exhort. My friends, we have a Spirit who works within us. To build up his church. He's given us the people. He's given us the time. He's given us the rest. And he has given us the gifts. What then should we do? We should do two things. We should disciple one another. And we should evangelize the lost. Notice in verse 26. That there is something insufficient about Apollos. In spite of being born in Alexandria, major thumbs up for him. In spite of being instructed in the way of the Lord. In spite of being mighty in scripture, eloquent in speech, rightly understanding the gospel, believing the truth of the gospel. Though he is full of the spirit and gifted by the spirit. According to verse 25, he does not know the spirit. It says at the very end of that verse that he knew only the baptism of John. Do you remember what John said about his baptism? I baptize you with water, but Christ, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now notice here that Luke does not say that Apollos was not baptized with the Holy Spirit. Indeed, Luke belabors the point that he is baptized with the Holy Spirit. He knows the gospel. He believes the gospel. He eloquently and competently preaches the gospel. This is a spirit-filled man. But he is a man who has not yet come to understand that he is spirit-filled. He has not learned the doctrine of Pentecost. He has not learned the truth of the pouring out of the Spirit in the ascension of Jesus Christ. And so Aquila and Priscilla take him aside. They listen to him speak boldly in the synagogue Jesus the Christ, the Promised One, Jesus the Crucified Son of God, Jesus the Resurrection and the Life. And they listen and they wait for it, and there's no ascension, there's no indwelling Spirit. And so Aquila and Priscilla take him aside and explain to him the more accurate understanding of the gospel. We might say it this way. He knew the gospel right up to Matthew 28. What he was missing was Acts chapter 1. And they came and they spoke to him of the work of the Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit, and they privately mentor him and disciple him, That he might grow in his faith. I know this will not be a great shock to you. But there is no one on our membership roll. No one who sits in these pews or watches our live stream. Least of all the one in your pulpit. Who is a finished product. None of us have arrived yet. No, my friends, we are all in need of discipleship. We are all in need of mentors and those who can show us the more accurate way that we might grow in our grasp of the gospel, that we might grow in our understanding of the work of the Spirit. There is a maturing in the Spirit that we desperately need, and He has given us the people, the time, the rest, and the gifts to do such work. We have in the Spirit of Christ all that we need to help each other grow in the work of Christ and in the grace of Christ. But what is more, we have in one another all that we need in order to reach out to the lost. In our final verses, 27-28, through Apollos, for reasons unknown to us, desires to go over to Achaia, that is southern Greece, that is Corinth, and he desires to go there to preach the gospel. And, and the brethren there in Ephesus who have benefited much from his ministry do not cling to him. But rather exhort him and encourage them him to go. And they actually write a letter on his behalf to bless him. That he might actually go and indeed be received warmly and well. When he arrives in verse 28... He vigorously begins the public ministry of refuting the Jews. He begins by showing from the scriptures Jesus is the Christ. He takes up the great work of engaging with the lost. And he shows himself a competent evangelist, full of the Spirit, full of demonstration of power, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. Friends, he has what he needs through the discipleship of Priscilla and Aquila, who were in turn discipled by Paul, there is this beautiful provision for the church in Corinth, out of Ephesus. And this brings us then to this incredible symmetry in the story, to this remarkable work of the Holy Spirit. Like a traffic cop in the center of Asia The Holy Spirit is drawing Paul out of Corinth, out of Ephesus, into Antioch to rest. At the very same time, he is raising up Apollos out of Alexandria and bringing him to Ephesus to be discipled that he might go to Corinth to evangelize. The Spirit doesn't miss a beat, does it? He puts the men where they belong. He is able to make men for the ministry and ministry for the men. He is able to give us those believers whom we need in the office of deacon and elder. He is able to give us those church planters and pastors who we need to see the kingdom advance. He is able. He is the sovereign spirit who knows where we should be and what we should be doing He is able, my friends, to give us the rest and the refreshment, Sabbath by Sabbath and night by night, that we might work while it is day and while it is the week. He is able to give us, my friends, all that we need to do the work of the church. For the Spirit of Christ does the work of the church. So let us serve one another. Let us care for one another. Beloved, the Spirit of Jesus does the work. Let us care for one another. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this beautiful day. And we give you thanks for this beautiful gospel that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We give you thanks, our Father. That he has sent his spirit into the world. To dwell within his church. To bless and to strengthen his people. To equip us, to build us up. And to see indeed the sanctification and salvation of his people. We give you thanks that he is the power of God unto salvation. And that in him we may have confidence to do our work. We thank you that in him we are equipped to care for one another, and to serve the gospel to one another. We pray that you would grant us grace this week, this afternoon, that we, Father, would drink deep of these truths and meditate on the power and wonder of the Spirit of Christ and indeed live in the confidence and the courage of His indwelling power. Father, grant us this grace that we might turn our hearts to Christ and live in submission and service to Him. For this we pray in His name. Amen.